everyone. Welcome back to another episode of How to Live the Podcast. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. Thank you for tuning in today. Hello there. So how was your weekend in Byron? Oh my goodness, it was magical. So it was one of my best friend, Gigi's birthdays on Saturday. So I went with him and a few friends to Byron for the weekend and it was so, so wonderful and lovely. Not that I deserved another holiday because I am coming off the back of three weeks holiday, but you I'll did take deserve it. it. Oh, yeah, totally. It was delicious. I'm really secretly plotting how I can move to Byron this year. Not I don't so think secretly. You're secretly doing yeah. it. Yeah, no. And now I've said it on here, so really, it's just an overt plan that's totally happening. I feel like I should start a tubes pop up this Christmas in Byron. So if anyone out there can make that happen please hit me up. Awesome. Love that. So we're super excited to get into today's episode. And today we do talk about the environment quite a bit in this episode. So we did want to just start by talking quickly about the bushfires that have been happening in Australia. Yes. So if you aren't in Australia, no doubt you have been hearing about this. I mean, when we were traveling in Hawaii or when we've been speaking to people that are in Europe, everybody has heard about the bushfires that have been affecting Australia. And it's just been absolutely heartbreaking. And in particular for us, the wildlife, hearing the numbers that they're estimating that over a billion wildlife have died in the fires is just completely excruciating. And for us, we kind of felt a little bit removed from it being in the US and actually our team, our amazing team members here, Claire, Bianca and Sophie called us up and they were like, we just can't sit by while this is happening. We need to be doing something. So they did a lot of research and Tubes ended up giving a donation to a wildlife organization in New South Wales called Wires, which is Australia's largest wildlife rescue organization. We also personally did give to Wildlife Victoria as well because they do really amazing work. So definitely, if you haven't heard of those, go check them out. It was really amazing to see so many people rallying around and really donating what they could. But I do think that it is really important that we just see this as a big wake up call. You know, what's going on in our environment at the moment is a little bit scary and it's just good time to kind of step back and be mindful of our plastic use and kind of what we are spending money on, where we are investing and things like that. So I think that's really important to keep in mind as well. And I think that sometimes it can feel quite overwhelming, but just starting with yourself, like Jess said, with your own plastic use, where you can be making a difference in the environment can really make a big difference. And if there is anything that you have been doing either with the environment or to help those in the bushfires, we would love to hear what you've been doing. And we have have started our Facebook group. If you haven't joined yet, it's how to live the podcast on Facebook. So come and join in and we can have a little discussion on how we can all be banding together and making the world a better place. So without further ado, we would like to introduce to you this week's podcast guest, which is the incredible Erin Brockovich. So you might know her because her life was actually made into a movie starring Julia Roberts, but Erin is a consumer advocate and an environmental activist. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's amazing. Definitely so recommend. Good. Oh my God. We had Epic so much watch. fun. Yeah. Hasn't aged. Oh, it hasn't aged a day, just like Julia Roberts herself. We had such a good time getting to go back and watch the movie. But if you haven't seen it in a little while, just to give you a little refresher, it's based on Erin's life. She was in her 30s and an employed single mother of three. And she is so bloody sassy and amazing. And she ends up convincing her way into a job with this lawyer named Ed. And she ends up completely spearheading this 
epic case against the bad guys, Pacific Gas and Electricity, because they've contaminated the water in a small town called Hinkley. And she fights for these residents who are experiencing all kinds of sicknesses. And when nobody else will listen to them, she becomes their voice. So that's all you need to know. But to be honest, you don't even really need to know because this conversation is just so wonderful. And it's not only about that, but it's also just about her and how inspirational and fantastic she is. So today we chat about what gave Erin the courage and sass to stand up for so many people, the life lessons she's learned from her mother, how to create change within yourself, plus what it was like to meet Julia Roberts, because obviously we needed to know that and much, much more. So stick around to the end of this episode to hear what incredible entrepreneur we have on the podcast next week. And in the meantime, have the best time listening to Erin Barakovich herself. We're certain that most people would have seen the movie Erin Brockovich starring Julia Roberts with your name on it. An oldie but a goodie. But we did want to start off by asking you, what is something about you that we wouldn't know from the movie? <laughs> we'll be here all day. <laughs> Just There's one thing, not all things. things. We can think a few things. I can be more introverted than somebody might imagine. I'm not always just like bold and in your face. I have a big heart. I definitely think we can tell that from, yeah, from the sure. story. Probably I'm more reclusive than one might think. Mm. I really enjoy my quiet time, my downtime. I'm very introverted in a way. I, I look at myself a lot, what I'm going to do, very much so. Maybe a little more spiritual than people would imagine as well. You know, it's mm. funny because I think we got that from your Instagram. Totally. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. And wow. we're both spiritual people. So I was like, oh, yes, this is peeps. Come well, on. I'm on again, off again, social media. I can either get really busy or I'm like, eh, I don't know if sometimes... Lately, I've been doing more lifestyle kind of posts, you know, as I've matured, I'm definitely more conscientious about, you know, my health. I've always been conscientious about my health, but it's a little different as you age. So workouts, what I'm eating, what I'm not eating, but that's a keen observation that you picked up on that. So when you were growing up, what was your family life like? Well, that's something most people wouldn't know because of the work I do. I was raised by a very staunch Republican man who worked for industry and built the pipelines for Texaco. Yet he's the very one that taught me the value of water, the value of the environment, and the importance of health and welfare, not only of your family, but publicly. My mom was a journalist, so she had a dual major, journalism and sociology. So I got a little bit of both my parents, the engineering side and the understanding of the environment, and the snoopiness from my mother. Very important. I see that. I see how the parallels there between like the journalistic qualities. Yes, Snoopy. And I think that I get some of my, I don't think, I know. Um, it may come across as indignant, but uh, I'm a dyslexic. So growing up, I was teased and ridiculed and always thought to be different and I don't like being put in a box or judged. I don't think any of us do. And we're really waking up to that today. But it was my mom and a school teacher that really saved me. My mom always taught me that just because you're different doesn't mean you're inferior. And a school teacher who thought outside of the box and gave me my test orally 
instead of written. And it changed not only my GPA, but my perception of myself. It helped me believe in myself. See, I knew I was smart. I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't necessarily comprehend the same reading as visual and hearing. That's pretty incredible. I love what you said your mom said there is just because you're different doesn't mean you're inferior because seeing the movie Aaron Brockovich that really comes across about you that you never feel inferior even when people are trying to make you feel that way. I learned that growing up and I can see that you know we all talk about being gaslit today. (laughs) I think there's a whole worldwide thing of gaslighting Mm -hmm. and in a way I was different and because I didn't fit that standard of conformance to this idea that you have to do something or learn something a certain way and there's no other way just seemed ridiculous to me and I was compelled to push against it. You ended up working in a law firm but you didn't have a college degree but when we were looking online we actually found that you'd been to college for a semester. I went to Kansas State University and then I graduated from Wade's Business College. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a designer and so I ended up going to Wade's Business College and you know now I have some great accolades on my wall and I have to say that there's nothing like hands-on experience and really I learned more in my career than I could have ever learned in sitting in a classroom for four years. I like to be boots on the ground and know what I see and what I experience. So then in case people haven't seen the movie or just for a refresher, and also because it's amazing to have you here and like hear the story right from you, how did you kind of fall into that work? Oh, I had been in a car wreck in Reno, Nevada. And I lost that case, but what had happened prior was I'd moved from Reno to Los Angeles. I met the biker dude, George, (laughs) and he was friends with Jim Vitito, who was Ed Masry's partner. Was George that hot in real life, by the way? Well, that's, you know, so funny you should say that because my running joke is, had the real biker dude looked anything like the guy in the film, I would have never kicked him out. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) people always ask, (laughs) oh my gosh. But yes, George was very attractive and he wore the bracelets and he was the biker guy with the long ponytail. I was always so jealous. He always had better hair than I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's never going to work, dating a guy with better hair than you. It was just wrong. (laughs) So George knew Jimmy, and Jimmy took on my case, and it just didn't turn out the way we had thought. And I just went to Ed, and I kind of begged. I needed a job. And, you know, you kind of made me some promises that this was going to turn out, and it didn't, but I'm willing to work. And so begrudgingly, Ed hired me, and I started in the workers' compensation department. And I like people. And I listen to people. You know, that's a skill I think we've lost. Are we really listening? And this is when Ed came to me and Roberta Walker had been in touch and he was busy. And so he sent me out there and I met Roberta and it just became that moment. This is why I think boots on the ground is so important. You can feel things. I'm very connected to the earth and energy is real. My instincts really started to fire And that was one of my greatest gifts I had, and it's one that we all have, but we're taught not to use it or listen to it. And it was that common sense set of skills that I had learned in Kansas. Outside playing, skies turn dark, tornado sirens go off. I don't need to call the weather channel to find out if it's an F4 or an F5. My instincts tell me to run. 
And my instincts were all up in arms in Hinkley. I could sense it. I could smell it. I could feel it. I was connected to it. And that's what I went with. Mm. And we move away from that. We do. We really do. And women are keen at it. You know, you know. Yes. Every woman knows. You know when your kid's lying to you. You just know when (laughs) something's up. But we don't always stay with that. And I've learned that when I turn away from that, that's usually my mistake. Yeah, well, and it comes back to that formal education, being in that box, you know, thinking that we're meant to be like living in this certain way. Yeah. Rather than actually questioning everything and and thinking about what what we really want. Absolutely. And we're experiencing it. You know, we have these conversations about climate change and water and all of that. And we know what we're experiencing. And we don't have to label it anything, but we're experiencing changes. And there's no harm in being more proactive instead of reactive and prepared. I learned this at Harvard, the recipient of the Julius B. Richmond Award. And they're really all about that, being proactive and being prepared. So what's the worst if the storm never comes? Great, it never came. But what if it did? What if it does? We're prepared. And I think that we've come a long way and we're learning a lot more and we have this huge open door of technology and we've become so advanced. There should be no reason why we don't have a conversation about what's happening with the environment. I'd like to get politics out of the environment because it affects all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican or if you're rich or poor or the color of your skin. This is the planet we all live on and we're all going to need clean air and clean water or it's going to be game over. That's not being Doomsday chicken little, the sky it. is falling. Yeah. But we all see changes happening. It's something that we talk about so often as well within our team and everything about the environment. So it's really awesome to hear you say that because we definitely share the sentiment that it's up to all of us to care and each person can make a huge difference. And then kind of looking at your story and like those initial stages of you working at Hinkley, something that really stood out to us was how sassy you seem and just like super like, you know, you've got like this epic attitude, like no one can stand in your way. Is that the real you? Just like absolutely giving no fucks? (laughs) Yes. Not always. I'm not always flippant. Like, you know, you'll see in the film, you know, you've got two left feet and ugly shoes. I love that line. Um, It was a good one. It was great. But I just don't walk into any meeting and say that to somebody. It took years. And also it takes a screenwriter to come up with something like that on the spot. You know, like none of us can come out with those quips. No. We think it later and you're like, damn it, I should have said that. I know, right? Yeah. But I get like that again. And I'm going to keep coming back to the word gaslight. Because it's somebody projecting onto me. The minute that happens to me, I start going, wait a minute. Why do you need to do that to me? Why do you want to push me back or push me down? Because usually if you have nothing to hide, you'll have that conversation. But when I get the this and you're going to get stopped and you're out of line or you know nothing about this, you shouldn't be asking these questions. I'm going to get more and more and more indignant. But it's funny because most people will actually have the opposite yeah, they do. Where the they kind of go, to they do. Yeah, exactly. Like you kind of go into yourself and you're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I think that? Yeah, one? you put it back on yourself rather than thinking that someone else is wrong. I must be wrong. Yeah. That's the automatic reaction. Yeah, of most yeah which people. isn't how we should be. Like we should be able to kind of stand our ground and know what we know, which is so awesome that you can do that. It's probably, again, the dyslexia. I code differently. Most dyslexics do. It's just a matter of 
we're all individuals, right? We all have different fingerprints. I mean, we all can have different perceptions and how our brain works and dyslexics code differently. So it may have something to do with that. And see, I don't always think forward. I think backwards. <laughs> so when I get that kind of suppression, I start backing up myself and going, what is it back there that you're hiding or you don't want to bring forward? Yeah, you're putting it back onto them. Correct. Another thing that we kind of talked about is that persistence that you have. And no matter how hard things get, you don't give up. And that's something that we like to talk about a lot is like, no never means no. Mm -hmm. You know, we have had so many things happen to us where people said no to us at first. And then if you kind of stick with it, you can turn that around. What goes on in your mind when someone says no to you? My mom. And you just said the word stick to it because she taught me to have stick toitiveness. As a dyslexic, again, I would always come home from school feeling dejected and put down again for another bad grade. And my mom was my biggest cheerleader. And she'd always say, oh, you know, Aaron, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Uh-huh. You know, as a kid, you're like, right, mom. So one day she said to me, you just have to get your stick on. And I'm thinking, what? Because I'm from Kansas, so we have a lot of slang words, cattywampus, slaunchwise, things like that. <laughs> I didn't know I'm what you just said at all. <laughs> oh, right. See, those are slang <laughs> <Absolutely> words. Absolutely not. <laughs> right. Well, sometimes... Cattywampus, it, what's that? Diagonal. The oh. sitting cattywampus. Okay. Oh. Not straight. Cattywampus. <laughs> You're looking at us like it's obvious, but I can tell you it is not. You're like, you know, well, oh, can, this is the, with the hand cattywampus. Cattywampus. Oh. oh my gosh. So that's kind of what I thought it was. And I said, mom, you know, this isn't helping me at all. You know, stop. And so she left the room to return with the Webster's Dictionary. And definition of stick to is noun. Propensity to follow through in a determined manner. Dogged persistence, born of obligation and stubbornness. And I'm like, oh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> That's all you had to say. I'm dogged, I'm determined, I'm stubborn. And she taught me that life will require me to have stick to And she was right. So I became the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. And even today, and I hope no one ever thinks I don't have obstacles or anything. Oh my gosh, I have to jump these hurdles almost every single day. I hear my mom's voice. Erin, you have to have stick to Life requires it. Mm. And I just go out there and, like you said, stick with it. It's that internal <laughs> dialogue is so important. And I think what's also cool to hear you speak about it is like, you know, we all have these ideas of ourselves. And like, you know, we could list qualities that we think about ourselves and some of them are negative. Great. Like you just said stubborn, which would ordinarily be a negative quality. But even with our negative qualities, all these positive qualities come with it. So yes, I might be stubborn, but that also means I'm really persistent. Mm -hmm. I know what I believe Correct. and I get it done. And so like, I think that there's like really something in that, this conversation that we need to be having around what we feel bad about ourselves Correct. can really just be reframed into a positive. Listen, I am so inspired, honestly, being here today and seeing, you're obviously younger than I am, <laughs> these new generations getting that and getting the power of themselves. Hence why my fourth book's called Superman's Not Coming. See, we have these old fairy tales that, you know, we're damsel in distress and somebody will always come rescue us when the fact of the matter is stop looking for the hero and be the hero. It's right in front of you. It's you. And how we have a play on words, and you're right about thinking stubbornness is bad. My mom always taught me because I was seen as disruptive 
disruption isn't bad. While we're having disruption right now, I love it because we're all like kind of waking up going, hey, what's going on over there? And how am I going to be a part of it? Should I be involved? Can I be involved? So we look at certain words that have a bad connotation, even whistleblower. They're good traits. Mm. And so stick-to-itiveness and snoopiness. Jessica's got snoopiness, a lot of it. Oh, I'm hectically snoopy. (laughs) See? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but you question things, and I think that's really important. And we've been, in some ways, taught not to question them or or taught not to believe that gut feeling. So you're absolutely right. And it's hopeful for me to see the conversation you're having, being able to connect and understand yourself. That's where everything begins. Speaking of taking something bad and turning it into something good, I read that your dyslexia was the reason that you actually did go and memorize everybody involved in the cases, names, yeah, that's how I work. numbers, details. Oh my gosh, I could tell you Roberta Over Walker. 600. 634. Roberta Walker, if she was listening, she'd giggle. I don't think she has the same number of 760-253-5454. That'd be the right area code and it's changed. That's my learning curve. There's something to meeting somebody and learning their name and then writing it down and then getting a document or reading something about their property and then putting in a file. So I worked in archive boxes and I had all my files there and I just, that's how I learn it. And then I know it. And they were like family. And so I just knew them every single day. I felt them. I understood them. And you can definitely see that you have this excellent way of like connecting with people and allowing them to feel heard. You know, just watching this case, it's like you were in charge of getting all the victims together and getting mm-hmm. them on your side to really go up against PG&E. And you just have this way of letting them feel heard and trusted. How do you do that? Is there like a key there? It's an amazing quality. You have to not be afraid to be vulnerable. I was never afraid when they asked me questions to say, hell if I know, but we can find out and not say, oh, I know, or act like I knew. I was never afraid to be vulnerable. They were showing me their most vulnerable side. And so I was just who I was with them. And it was okay not to know everything. It was okay to be afraid. It was okay to say, I'm not certain. It's okay to hold their hand and go, I'm scared. The trust, the moment I'm like, the green water coming out the tap. It's like, really? What the fuck is that? You're going to drink it? I mean, honestly, it's that direct because we all see it. They all knew it, but they just didn't want to say it. And then I became a source of, you know, oh my gosh, somebody else sees this. We're not crazy. And so how we lose so much by not connecting with each other. And so I think it's that vulnerability. I do understand how they feel. Listen, as a single mom, I had no business doing what I was doing. I didn't have all the PhDs. I wasn't the big lawyer coming to town, but I was just like them. And it affected me and I just felt I could be a voice. And then once I chimed up, another came in and another came in and then we realized the power of strength. I do a ton of keynote speaking and I talk about two programs. One is my four L's, logic, leverage, loyalty, and love. Logic's your common sense. You know, when you follow your common sense, you'll logically do the right thing. And leverage, that's your neighbor. Give me your hand. You know, then give me your hand. And leverage is like if you're out on the road and you have a flat tire, you get the jack out. And with like 10,000 hands, you can lift the car. That's the power of leverage. And you have a stronger voice together. Loyalty is your stick staying true to the cause. 
And lastly, I think it's the why in all of our lives. Honestly, I ask myself every day. I even ask myself every day, why am I doing this? I don't see my kids. I hardly make any money. But it was born of love, love for those people, for water. It was visceral. It was for me as well. Love of freedom and love of fresh air. I mean, love of going to work to earn a paycheck, to send my kids to college in the future. I mean, all of it. And that's our motivator. And I think we need to remind ourselves, why am I doing something? And it's often born because I love you. Or I I love my country. I love water. I don't like what I see happening here, but I want to change it because of love. So it's a good step to follow, especially for communities. Don't be afraid that logic is your common sense. Don't let that big word scare you. Logic. What is it anyway? It's your common sense. It's your instincts. And use leverage. Get to know your neighbor. Be loyal to your cause. Have that stick to itness. And your why. It's born of love. So powerful. And I think what you said there about connection coming down to vulnerability, it's so powerful. You know, if you think about any relationships that you have in your life, they're nothing without that vulnerability. And, you know, even for us in the workplace, trying to create a new kind of working environment for our young team members Mm -hmm. where it's not just about going to work every day. It can be scary to be vulnerable with them, but even when we are vulnerable with them, when we open up to them and, you know, when we have like a sharing circle and and we share, you know, the things that are tough for us and just not being afraid to say, I find this hard, I don't know the answers to this, that's when you really lead to connection. When we're all out there pretending Mm -hmm. and just acting like we've got it together. Absolutely. Then we're just kind of like hitting against each other and and we're not really connecting. Well, and we're all presenting each other with like this false sense of who we are, but like everyone's doing it. Like then we're all just out there being a bunch of fakies as opposed to actually all embracing each other for our differences. Absolutely. And there is no trust in fake. When you're that vulnerable, you have to trust and it's hard to trust. But when you do, it's very freeing. It's like, uh, I'm so glad I got that off my chest. I don't have to feel that way. Listen, I honestly feel that now as I've gotten older too. And as we get older, you know, we're so visually and youth oriented. And I tell people all the time, here's my other program, RAM, which is about realize, assess, and motivate oneself. You know, realize the power of who you are and not be afraid of that person. Take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror and be honest with yourself about what your vulnerabilities are. And the A is for assessment. And you can have a flaw, but here's the beauty of it. If you don't like something about yourself, change it. That's the power of choice. You can choose to perceive yourself a different way. You can choose to, hey, I'll go back to school or maybe I'll try this. But that's the hopeful side of it. I mean, think about if you have a piece of property and the appraisal comes in low. What do you do? You go in and you remodel a little, right? A bathroom, maybe change the pool around, take the carpet out, put in a hardware floor. You know, the value starts to go up. You can do the same thing with yourself. So don't be afraid if there's something about yourself that you don't feel good about. So what? Nobody's perfect. Go change it. Do something different. And along with that, you're just your self-appraisal of who you are goes up. And I really want to teach people, it's not about what you have. It's about who you are. Who are you? That kindness, that love, all of those great qualities. Don't be afraid to let that show because there's been this standard of how it is and what we perceive as good. And lastly, your motivation. And motivation is hard to find these days. And there's a trick to it. 
And that's take time for self-renewal and self-love. Honestly, go take a walk along the beach. Smell the ocean. Listen to the waves. Because I truly believe it's in this space that you can hear yourself. And you can feel yourself. And when you can find yourself, you can be unstoppable. Definitely. Wow. I just want to sit back here and let you continue. The, <laughs> I want to hear the whole keynote. <laughs> so, Incredible. Yeah. But, but you're so right that it is in that space that you find yourself because I think we all are so busy now all the time with technology. We're on our phones. We are scared mm-hmm. to be alone a little bit. And I think that when you are never alone and when you're always busy, you forget what's really important. And I think it's when you take those mm-hmm. breaks because I've been doing a lot of this lately for the first time in a really long time. And having those moments when you're on your own, when you're on the beach or in nature is when you realize what's really important. Right, because you can hear yourself think. Hmm. You really can. Yeah, I read an article the other day, even Jennifer Aniston. She just disconnects from that phone. Uh, there's been many a time my phone has found its way out the car window at a lake or something. Now, mind you, that's pollution. I have to be careful about that. But <laughs> listen, even a computer with too much data coming in at once crashes. And we're no different. We are processing and assimilating an amazing amount of data every single day. We've got to have a moment to disconnect and breathe. Honestly, I think most people, you even catch them in the middle of the day, you're not breathing. 1,000%. You're breathing like in like the 20% like top part of your breath. Guttural. Breathe. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And just take that moment. I absolutely believe my spirituality, my solitude, my voice, when I connect to the environment, it's there. You know, I ask people in my talks, everybody to close their eyes, and I don't want you to open them until I say to open them, and I'm going to ask you a question. That space where you can find yourself, where you can relax and hear your thoughts, and I just let that hang there for a minute, and then I ask them, now I'm going to tell you, Raise your hands, but don't open your eyes. I want to ask you, how many of you are somewhere outside? Every hand in the room comes up. I said, now open your eyes and look around, and they're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. There's your connection. That's amazing. And that's the one thing in the environment that we've disassociated ourselves. We are connected to the environment, and that's where we're solid, and I think with all the pollution issues and air issues and everything else right now, it's very disheartening. And we are coming back to, oh my gosh, that's our connection. And connection to the environment, which leads to connection with each other as well, which I think is really important. Even the animals, you know, oh my gosh, there's your doggy over here, panther. Panther. Are you you awake? No. (laughs) He's just enjoying the soothing Um, sounds. The animals, sometimes I think it's man's ego becomes our biggest stumbling block. But even look at the bees. Oh, my gosh. I mean, what happens to us without them? So all of the animal life, all of it, it's connected. And I think if one starts to go, inevitably, you know, the human race could be in peril. And again, not to say that the sky is falling, but the hope is us. And the hope is the recognition of the conversation we're having. And the next generations coming forward and finding themselves and learning again what our priorities are. It's always been about what you have, and that's part of the industrial revolution that got us to where we are. But that won't get us forward if we don't look at who we are. That's how we're going to change our future. 
For sure. So we did want to ask you some fun questions about oh, the movie and how that all came about. Oh, absolutely. So we haven't said, but people have obviously seen the movie that you went on to win the case and PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electricity, paid $333 million to the victims. Correct. After that whole case happened, how did they end up making a movie about your life? That's one of those moments that I ever predicted or said, oh, somebody's going to make a film about me and Julia Roberts is going to star in it. You would have said I was crazy. (laughs) And I would have had to agreed with you. Yes, I am crazy. It started with a girlfriend of mine by the name of Pam DeMond, who I met through my sister. And she's a craniologist. And I'd had that car wreck and I was still having a lot of ongoing problems. So I would go in to see her to get craniology done. If you've never had it, it's fascinating. But you know, all the bones and stuff in your head, like everything else in your body, can get tense and tied up. So craniology gets in there and moves them. Oh, is it like craniosacral therapy? Yes. I think they call it? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. sounds that. really yeah. delicious. What well, is? It's like hollow, take a volume, and you're just like, <laughs> and I got like that every time she worked on me. And just out of conversation, and she's back here molding my head around, and oh, it just feels so good. She'd ask me questions about my work. She goes, so Aaron, like, what's the cooler in your car? I'm like, oh, the dead frogs. She goes, what dead frogs? And so I would just talk to her. You know, I'd show up, and she's like, have you been out in the dirt near stilettos and miniskirt? I'm like, oh, yeah. She's like, what are you doing? So I started telling her everything that I was doing. And I didn't know that she was also friends and treating a woman by the name of Carla Schomburg, who was married to Michael Schomburg, who was Danny DeVito's partner in Jersey Films. So Carla's now like, oh, come on, some single mom, no education. You know, she's out there doing what? I want to meet her. (laughs) So I met Carla. I'll never forget the first day. I mean, she really thought she was on candid camera, you know. Well, I still kind of dress the same, but I was 30. I was feisty. My, I don't wear mini skirts anymore. That's over. Just the teased back hair, the, the whole attitude. She's like, are we kidding? So am I on candid camera? I'm like, no. I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? But long story short, I met with Danny DeVito, and they decided they wanted to do the film. Look, Carla Schomburg made it perfectly clear to me. We buy movie rights all the time. And most of the time, they never get made. So she really set me up for not believing that this could happen. It could, but more likely, it won't. And they'd offered $70,000. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. In my life. And so both Ed and I signed off on our life rights. They went and got Steven Soderbergh. I mean, everything moved so quickly, I couldn't believe it. And Ed used to always ask me, kid, if they really make this movie, who do you think should play you? And I said, I don't know. Somebody fun like Goldie Hawn, because I'm actually fun. People don't know that about me. And he's like, oh, no, I was thinking more along the lines of Roseanne Barr. Ha, 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 Ed, which, uh, because, you know, I have a potty mouth. So he said, all kidding aside, I don't care who gets the part as long as it's not Julia Roberts. And I said, Julia Roberts is great. He said, because her boobs weren't big enough and her mouth wasn't foul enough. Is that ever going to happen? I'm like, oh, okay. Anyway, the day I got the call from Steven Soderbergh, and again, you're talking from the time we signed our rights to the time the film came out was four years. It went fast. Mm. And when Stephen called and said, we've cast the characters, and I'm like, who is it? He goes, it's Julia Roberts. I'm like, oh, I couldn't (laughs) wait to call Ed and tell him. And then Ed thought, oh, they've cast Tom Cruise for me. And I'm like, yeah, nope, it was Albert Finney. (laughs) It's like, no. But it happened really quick. It's still kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around it. I can't see this anything other more than it's sometimes my calling. And 
it was just meant to roll out this way. I didn't do this alone. We're all Aaron Brockovich. We all have that voice. We just all have to be given that opportunity to rise. And that's the platform. And that's the message that none of us do any of it alone. But when we're together, we make a ginormous difference. And so I'm oftentimes still uncomfortable. It isn't about me. It's about all of us. Yeah, but you're so right there that, you know, we don't believe in coincidences. That's meant to happen. You know, what's the likelihood of someone who's massaging your brain in this really yummy way that I'm going to Google later (laughs) manages to be connected to Danny DeVito? Like those connections, like they don't happen for no reason, you know, to give the story that sort of platform and that sort of exposure, like it was meant to happen in that way. It was. Also, did you get to spend time with Julia Roberts? Like did she have to research you to like be able to play you? No, that was Steven Soderbergh's decision, and I never understood it until I asked him later and they were done shooting the film. I spent a year, probably longer than a year, with the writer Susanna Grant, day in and day out, so she had a total gauge on who I was. Unbeknownst to me, she would be doing stuff, and I'd hear a click, and I'm like, were you recording that? She goes, absolutely. I'm like, oh no. I can even see it though. Like you now, having just watched the movie yesterday, I can totally see how she really captured your personality. Yeah, I agree. Well, Stephen picked her because there's a similar mannerism that he saw that I wouldn't see, that she might not see. He said it was just going to be her part. But he didn't let her hang out with me. And he said it's because I don't want her to just mimic you. And you were like, she needs to understand you. Yeah, Yeah, like I thought you guys were going to be best friends. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We got to meet her, right? Oh, absolutely. So the first time I met her, we were both on set. Now, he kept us away from each other because for him as a director, this wasn't my job. I can only tell you what he shared with me. It was important that she understood. She felt the character. And so sometimes if you see them, you just mimic them or copy them or then you get self-conscious and like, oh, maybe that's something she wouldn't do or I saw her do this. So the whole thing changes versus being able to hear and feel and experience the situation. So we really weren't around each other. And I was in the dressing room that day for my little cameo appearance and the mirror was in front of me. And so I could see from the mirror, she came through the door and she saw I was there and went in another door and I could hear across the door going, why didn't you tell me she was in here? And then you just hear, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm sitting here thinking, how rude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're just going to ignore me. So she came back out, and she walked behind me and kind of came up to my left, and her hand came in, and she goes, hi, I'm Julia. And I look up, and I'm giggling. I'm like, okay, this is weird. Hi, I'm Erin. And she's like, I don't even have my boobs in yet. I feel so embarrassed because she had one of those push-up bras. And it just broke the ice. It was something funny. And that's how I first met her. And she's, her energy is everything that you think it would be. Mm. I couldn't say enough good things about her. And I loved her before she ever played an Aaron Brockovich. But she just has that energy about her. So I could see why Steven Soderbergh, you know, he, he picked the right person. She did a great job. For sure. Because that's who she is. Hearing you talk about she played her in Aaron Brockovich. I'm like, how funny would that be if I was like, she played her in Just Dad On? You know, like the fact that it's your name, your was name the title. as well. I didn't see that one coming. That scared me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's I just found like a whole new level of like. Right. Yeah. You could have called it anything else and never known. We were at the rap party and everyone said, Aaron Brockovich. I mean, that's the title right now. And they're like, well, that's a stupid name for a movie. <laughs> I'm like, right? They're like, go ask Steven. So I did. And I said, so what's the name? He's like, 
duh, Aaron Brockovich. And I'm like, oh, Amazing. oh God. So 23 years later, you're still fighting for clean water. And we were quite shocked when we were researching this interview to read about how much non-clean water is out there and how much this is still an issue and even in Australia. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing here in Australia now? I've been coming here for years, and these past few years, it's clearly been about a chemical called PFOS, which you would know as firefighting foam. And ABC News just finally did a Freedom of Information Act. It took about a year to get the information from the government. But in Queensland alone, you have 70 PFOS sites. Most people in Australia don't know a small town of Catherine, which is up towards Darwin. They have no municipal water because it's all contaminated. So the fire foam that you're talking about, is that the stuff that they drop over fires Uh from helicopters? Helicopters, airplanes, it's used as a flame retardant. You can find it in clothes, so baby clothes, uniforms, airplanes, and it's the firefighters and the Department of Defense uses it all the time, you know, especially around Air Force bases. And they practice crashes and putting all the fire foam out. I mean, a lot of people in Australia remember it as kids. And on community day, the firemen would be out there with the foam and you could run and slide and play in it. Oh, no. And Poison. It's well, it is. And so what happened was 3M, who manufactured it, 3M notified the United States EPA maybe 30 years ago. This is a very bad actor. This is a very bad chemical. And you need to keep your eye on it. So what the EPA does when that happens is they set a guideline. They set a guideline at 400 parts per trillion. So municipalities could run that chemical through their system up to 400 parts per trillion. Then the next thing is EPA commissions a study, and they have to commission the funds for the study, which is millions and millions of dollars. And the studies take anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 years to go out and conclude whether this chemical does or doesn't cause cancer. So four years ago, science caught up with policy is what I say. And they called the EPA and they said, Houston, we have a real problem. This is absolutely a cancer-causing compound. Not to mention it causes diseases. We can't get it out of the environment. It's near impossible. And it has a half-life in human blood. So children who are on bore water or who have been exposed to these municipal levels at 400 parts per trillion and have been drinking it for five and 10 years, their future, because it stays in the body at 25 to 30, could be cancer or one of these diseases. And so it creates this huge nightmare in our country because all 88,000 municipalities are contaminated. And now they have to notify the consumer. And then the consumer is like, goes crazy and contacts me because is this why my child died of testicular cancer? Is this why my wife has thyroid cancer? Is this why I have excessively high cholesterol? Or my brother did and he died. Is this why my sister died of kidney disease? I got phone calls from states of Pennsylvania, Alabama, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Michigan, Colorado, California. It is now the largest emerging contaminant in the United States. We also notified, in one of our earlier documents, your government in 1987, that you had this problem. And here you do. So we've been out in Oki, where people are very sick. The levels are very high. It's going to trial next year. They've been getting bottled water. They've been told not to eat the eggs. They've been told not to eat the meat. You have the same contamination out in New South Wales, Williamstown, 
same orders, but they're told it's safe, but we're going to give you a bottle of water. It's safe, but don't drink the water. It's safe, but you can't eat the eggs. It's safe, but don't eat the beef. Yet it's happening in Oakey. It's happening in Williamstown in New South Wales. It's happening at the base in Perth. It's happening in Catherine. An entire town in Australia in 2019 has no access to clean, potable water. They're on bottled water. Now the government's decided that they may take that bottled water away and they're left to shower and drink tainted water. It's beyond unacceptable. And I think we have to get past this shell game and just be transparent. That's the only way we're going to get out of this because you render all citizens defenseless if you hide a secret like that from them. Secrets kill. It's the lie that kills. And we need to be forthwith about how we're going to address this issue. And first and foremost, how we're going to find safe, potable water for the United States of America and for Australia. And this PFAS is an outbreak that is frightening. Your government's currently saying that they don't have the science on it. We do. The entire Western nation does. Europe does. We do. It's a cancer-causing compound. It's being phased out. We're not going to use it. And we're going to have a really daunting task, and we don't have time to waste on how we're going to clean it up. So there's some frustration here with the government, but every time we're here and we have these conversations and it gets out to the public, they'll come back in with an inquiry, and we're going to make another step closer to at least being accountable. And being accountable isn't always about some lawsuit. It's about being honest and accountable to yourself in a situation and saying something before hundreds or if not thousands of people's future health is at stake, not to mention a health crisis that would come of this because you can't get it out of the body. In New York, we had a case in Hoosick Falls, and they all had bore water, and they had the same contaminant you did. And the children marched on the government in Albany with their PFOA blood levels worn on a placard card around their neck. You've got to be kidding me. It's 2017 at the time in the United States of America, and that's the message we get from our children? We have to look at the legacy we're leaving. And that's why I said to you, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart to be here today, how inspirational it is to me to see these upcoming generations that are truly going to say, we're not going to stand for this anymore. There's something at stake that's way more valuable than anything else you could talk about. And that's human life and the future of all people. And we have to start this daunting task of looking at the critical errors we've made of thinking that using our water systems as a way to dump our hazardous waste is a solution. It won't carry us forward. And now on the Sunshine Coast, they're cleaning up the tainted water and it's still tainted, but at lower levels and they're releasing it into the ocean. And you have a councilman there that's laughing about it and saying, oh, it's safe and I'm going to drink it and slapping it in his face, making a whole mockery of those people. And I don't understand why they won't even look at the science that is conclusive. Conclusive. Let me tell you. The United States of America, when they come out with a study and they tell you don't drink this, they mean it. Don't drink this. This isn't something made up. We're even finding huge levels of PFOS in the dolphins. And so here on the Sunshine Coast, they're begging. We've got to find another way. Once we've even cleaned it up and we still have tainted water, not to throw it into the ocean. We're literally taking a poop in our own mess kit. 
with all the pollution and in the water and into the ocean, we are contaminating our food supply. So I think it's a very important issue and one that's very critical that none of us should play around with too long. And it will take the younger voices to understand what's happening and learn about it and to speak up and to speak out to even get your own government to deal with this problem. So is that how people can help, is by speaking up and educating themselves? Absolutely. You see it in Catherine because of the numbers of people coming forward. And Oki, this is where the law plays a critical role. I mean, it is our defender. It's one of our last fronts of justice, if you will, where they can go in and argue this issue to get the agencies to do what's right by the people. What are we going to do with all the land? And all the cattle, what's happened to all of their property rights? And how do we replace that for them so they can go on with their life? So because of those communities speaking up, we do have the law involved. They're getting ready to file more cases around the country. And for your government to hear you're upset about it, whether it's petitions or having conversations on podcasts or the news coming forward and sharing information. Alan Jones has been very outspoken about this. And so I think the more we speak out and the more they see, wait a minute, this is catching on and the people of Australia are not going to stand for this. It does make a difference. At the end of the day, the power always belongs to the people. When they know better, they do better. And even look at the uprisings that are happening in the news right now across this entire world. It's enough. And we're going to take back our voice and our environment. And we're going to speak up for what it is we all need to be fighting for. This isn't a party issue. This is a human and a world issue. Incredible. I do feel like we're in safe hands having you here with us in Australia. So. Say, <laughs> you, know, you know, we end with that silence, you know. <laughs> sometimes I feel sorry for myself. I mean, I go to parties, someone will ask me a water question. By the time I'm done, they're like, yeah, don't invite her again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Not at all. We would love to have you back anytime you were in Australia. You can come hang out with us. It's been absolutely incredible. We do always wrap up our interviews with some quick fire questions. Okay. What is the most inspiring quote you've ever heard? It comes from my mom. It's when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that's a quote that she took. You know, I also like, it's Calvin Coolidge's quote. It's kind of linking. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Calvin Coolidge. Awesome. Amazing. Love Thank that. You. What is the best part of your day? Either early morning when it's really quiet and I can hear like the owls still kind of hooting at the end of the night. I have my coffee. I'm just kind of being outside in the morning or at the end of the day with my grandkids. They are a kick and just I don't know, hearing their voices, Gigi, we're here. It like, just <laughs> makes me smile. We saw them all over your Instagram. <laughs> so those so are my cute. two special times a day. How many times have you seen the movie Aaron Brockovich? Oh my gosh, once. <laughs> really? <laughs> I lived it. <laughs> so the first time I saw it was myself and my husband at the time, um, Ed Masry and his wife. And we each got a gauge of the other, and we loved it. We were accurate. We were proud of it. The portrayals were great. We were most nervous about what the people would think. And once, I'll come home, and it's so weird. My daughter 
and her two daughters will be sitting on the couch watching Aaron Brockovich. Not that the granddaughters make that association yet, but I'll come in and I'll hear, every day is a winding rose. And I'm like, no, you're watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, I get how if it's you, you just wouldn't be able to watch it again. But the people did love it. And Julia Roberts even won an Oscar for it. So that was pretty damn cool. True. She did. That was really cool. I wasn't there. One of my daughters was really sick. Mm. It's nerve-wracking for me to be on a red carpet, and it still is. I'm not an actress. I'm just me. My daughter took priority over going to the Academy Awards. I had a dress and everything made, but didn't get to go. Maybe she they'll did. be at number two, and you'll get we to go We signed a again. second movie deal, but at this point, you know, Steven Soderbergh's feedback is sometimes when you do a sequel, when you have something that's iconic, good idea to sometimes leave it alone yeah you're starting a new podcast yes so when can we listen to that i'm hoping january 2020 the 2020 is a good year for me to start a podcast my book comes out in fall 2020 and i have a television show that i'm executive producer of that abc bought and we're about done with the pilot and we're hoping to be on air in 2020 it's kind of thelma and louise meets law and order and it's a character that we're going to love that can be inspired by myself. And we're hopeful that that will be out in 2020. And a podcast, a book, and entertainment are great avenues for people to see that can oftentimes be shared in inspiring ways, not always in daunting ways, but truthful yet hopeful. And, you know, when we know the truth, the hope rises. And I think it's when we're in the dark that we're very restless about what's going on. So I think 2020 should be good. And January 2020 podcast, you're going to come to LA and be on my show? Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Okay. We already booked a trip there in April, so see you then. Perfect. I'll see you then. That'd be great. Awesome. Listen, I had the privilege of passing the Olympic torch. And of these days, I think it's very important. And I sit here with you to pass the torch on to you because I know you'll grab it and you'll be that shining light into the future. So I'm passing the torch. Absolutely. The torch. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for spending the time. Well, I look forward to seeing you in the U.S. For Amazing. sure. Okay. Right. Thank you. That was the incredible Erin Brockovich. Wow, we just felt so lucky to get to sit down with her. What an incredible, inspiring story. I mean, going from having dyslexia and dropping out of college to then being able to just be such a renowned success in this field. She is so respected and she's just really like taken her life into her own hands and gone out and stuck up for things that she cares about. So really, really awesome takeaways there. And not going to lie, we are pretty excited about our invite that we've gotten to go be on Aaron's podcast. So we are going to be following that one up. So stay tuned to hopefully hear us on our podcast soon. Yeah, like she said it openly on our podcast. Yeah. So surely she can't take it back. Totally. Right? Like you are all our witnesses. Exactly. She also came into our office and everyone in our office that works here was like absolutely so excited. Our mom even came in for the day to meet her because she was just so excited. So if you did like this episode, please leave us a review. Rate us five stars. Only if you think we're five stars worthy. Of I think course. we're five star worthy. Share a picture of you listening to the podcast on Instagram. And of course, 
come along and join our new Facebook group. If you type it into the search bar, how to live the podcast, we will come up and we can't wait to chat to you there. And we're going to chuck that into our show notes. So if you read the show notes, you can click through to the link, come. It's just an awesome place for all our community members to connect, to share values, to be vulnerable, to be open with one another and to learn from one another. So it's a really, really cool place. So next week on the podcast, we are very, very excited about this one. Oh, we we sure are. So this is somebody we have known, I want to say since you were two years old. Yeah, like I definitely remember her from when I was very little. It is the incredible lipstick queen herself, Poppy King. We got the opportunity to sit down with Poppy when we were in New York late last year. We were super excited because she built this crazy empire, a lipstick empire, when she was only 19 years old, I want to say. Yeah, 19. Yeah, and she just had so many incredible lessons because she built an empire, the empire failed, and the empire has striked back. Star Wars fan now, can you tell? And she has like rebuilt that empire. She's rebuilt it so many times as well. Like she started so many different lipstick brands. It's really incredible. It's such an interesting story. Take a listen. The ultimate success is success on your own terms. I would rather fail on my terms than succeed on other people's. So what's guiding me is not just a path to success. It's my own path of integrity towards success. And there have been times when I've had to really put that to the test that's next week right here on the podcast and in the meantime we hope you have the most fabulous week and we will see you in the facebook group bye